Very interesting uh, words in that hymn, isn't there? Knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. What a challenge that is to each and every one of us, particularly to those of us who perhaps have something else which is uh, very great in our lives. And this is the challenge that some of those in the passage before us uh, were facing. Now, I've been uh, preaching my way slowly through Acts of the Apostles, and we're now at chapter 21. About three years after the crucifixion, Saul, who's a Jew born in what is now modern Turkey, is converted and changes his name to Paul. And Acts 5.15 tells us that Paul has been set aside by the risen Lord Jesus Christ as his chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And with Barnabas, Paul is first a teacher in the church at Antioch for five years. And then after a prophecy by the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey in AD 48. And um, if we go to the next slide, I think it's the next one. This should be a little map. Uh, there we go. And, um, and th th there's three missionary journeys that Paul undertakes, starting in Turkey, and they get progressively bigger and bigger, the different journeys um, in which this... He's, Paul visits the city, preaches and establishes a church. And these three missionary journeys uh, cover a nine-year period. And the third journey, this one that we're just looking at at the end of, covers about 2,500 miles by land and sea. It starts in the spring of AD 53, and it takes four years. And this is described in Acts of the Apostles, verses, chapter 18, verse 23, through to what we've just read now, Acts 21, verse 16, which is May, AD 57. It's the Feast of Pentecost. And Paul, in this, uh, on this last uh, missionary journey, which lasted four years, Paul spends three years of it in Ephesus. And the result is that Ephesus becomes the number three Christian church in the world after Jerusalem and Antioch. And all this against very significant and continual opposition from believing Jews. Now, this last year, leading up to May AD 57, has been a very fruitful year for Paul. He wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus when he was there for three years. And he wrote that in early AD 56. Then he founded a church in Troas. And while he was at Philippi, you can probably see Philippi there near the top, number six. Uh, while I was at Philippi, he wrote 2 Corinthians in October 56. And we've just studied this book, haven't we, on Sunday mornings with Ian. And we've seen the issues that Paul was dealing with in that church. And then later in the winter of AD 56, Paul actually visits Corinth. And from Corinth, he writes his epistle to the Romans perhaps the greatest letter ever written in human history. And it's transformed the last, it's reading and understanding of it has transformed the last 500 years of Western civilization 
sparking both the Reformation and the Renaissance that followed, ushering in this present technological age. Now, Paul, at the time of Acts 21, is travelling with a mixed group of people. He's travelling with Jews, such as Timothy, and Gentiles, such as Luke. And there's also Sepater, a Gentile from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from the church at Derby, Tychicus and Trophimus from Ephesus. And this group acted both as physical security for the very large sum of money that they are bringing with them, which is a gift for the poor in the Jerusalem church, uh, money raised from all the Gentile churches, so this group acts both as physical security for their large sum of money they're carrying, but these men are also witnesses that the money will reach those for whom it has been so generously given. And this group's sea voyage ends at Tyre. So if we just step forward a little bit, at the beginning of the reading, they're up there here, they've left the Ephesian elders at Miletus. If you just press the button there, uh, it's got if you click on it no yes if you click on it it should drop down it definitely did when I, when I prepared it but anyhow so what they do is they sail from there into Patara and then skirting Cyprus they land down here at Tyre and uh, uh, there we go and then they start the land journey, so over 104 miles as the crow flies, all the way from Tyre, Ptolemaeus, Caesarea, and finally they wind up in Jerusalem. And um, it was a difficult journey for Paul because the churches that he called at, the brethren in the churches, were repeatedly forewarned that when Paul gets to Jerusalem, is going to wind up arrested. Now, as we go through this passage together, we're going to look at the different groups who were, taught, who were mentioned and the events that they uh, lived through, and we shall note what progress and what hindrances occur, and we're going to learn lessons from that. So, progresses and hindrances... Now, if we go to the next one, there we go. The Gentiles, the Gentiles were making progress. Now, Gentiles are everybody who's not a Jew, to the Jewish way of thinking. And Paul was preaching to the Gentiles, and Gentiles were being saved everywhere Paul had preached, and local churches had been established. And these Gentiles had been saved from very diverse backgrounds. Not only different to the Jews, but often very different to each other in different countries. It's no wonder that they'd been struggling with issues. Issues like those we've seen in Corinth uh, over these last few weeks. Uh, and as, but but the, the, the church in Corinth were making progress because they listened to what Paul wrote and what Paul said and they began to put things right that were wrong. 
Are you listening to what the apostle writes? And have you begun to put things right that were wrong? And so the Gentiles were making progress, and there was clear proof of their progress. The large gift of money to the poor Christians in the Jerusalem church was a tangible proof of the salvation of the Gentile Christians and a tangible proof of their progression in understanding and being obedient to the teaching of God's apostles and God's word. They'd accepted, for instance, the truth of Paul's first letter, that is to the, Corinthians, uh, to the Galatians, where in Galatians 3, 26 to 29, Paul writes, So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized in, who were baptized into Christ were clothed with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And the Gentiles accepted that teaching. They took it on board. And they, being in Christ, knew that they were one with the Jews who were also in Christ. And they also, so they knew the truth of what Paul had written in his first letter, but they also knew the truth of his latest letter that he'd just written to the Romans. Romans 15, 26 says, for Macedonia and Achaia, that's uh, the regions around Philippi and Corinth, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor amongst the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. And the Gentile Christians acknowledge their debt and responsibility to their Jewish brethren. They make a collection. And men in good standing in the various Gentile churches happily uh, accompany Paul to Jerusalem. Yes, the Gentiles had issues in their churches. Yes, they had difficulties. Excuse me. But they listened to a pot. They listened to us apostolic teaching and they were making progress. The gift was proof, tangible proof of their faith and their obedience to the apostles' teaching. Where is the tangible proof of your faith and your obedience to the apostles' teaching? The Gentiles, so newly converted to the doctrines of our Lord Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, are being obedient and can show tangible evidence. Can you? 
So the Gentiles were making progress. <clears throat> now the Jewish Christians were also making progress. They knew that what united them to fellow Christians was greater than what divided them. And they put that doctrine into practice, showing hospitality to Jew and Gentile Christians alike. They knew along with Paul what he had written in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. That the Gentiles were previously excluded from citizenship in Israel and were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. They, the Gentiles had been without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, Paul writes, those who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And when these Jewish Christians looked at the Gentile believers, they didn't see what divided them, but they saw what united them. Faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in his atonement on the cross for forgiveness of sins for both Jews and Gentiles. So when Paul's ship stops at Tyre, Christians meet Paul's mixed group of Jews and Gentiles and had good fellowship with them, Acts 21.5. It says, when it was time to leave and we left and continued on our way, all of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city and there we knelt on the beach, uh, there on the beach we knelt to pray. What an example of unconditional Christian love and fellowship. And again at Ptolemaeus, Acts 21.7, as the land journey starts, they stay overnight with Christian brethren. Paul's got quite a large party with them. It's not a soft option putting them up and feeding them, keeping them for, for a whole day. And then we read about Philip the Evangelist, is one of the seven chosen as the first deacons in Acts chapter 6. And he'd travelled extensively in Samaria. And this same Philip now lives in Caesarea. And he hosts Paul and his mixed group of mainly Gentiles for many days and had fellowship with them, as recorded in Acts 21 verses 8 to 15. Now, then we read that uh, some of the local disciples, and I'm sure they were certainly Jewish in Caesarea, accompanied Paul's party the 76 miles by road to Jerusalem. And then they had to do 76 miles to get back home. This is not going the extra mile, it's going the extra 100 miles, isn't it? Right? These Christians are putting themselves out for a group of Christians he had previously probably not met. But because they recognised they shared a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Manasson, the Cypriot Jew, who is described as an early believer, one of the first disciples, hosted Paul and company as they arrived in Jerusalem. It says they, they received them warmly. They fed and bedded this large party, as we are told in verses 16 to 17. 
all these Christian Jews didn't just judge the Gentile Christians by outward signs, but rather accepted them because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is tremendous progress for Jewish believers who would have had never had, would have had fellowship with pagan Gentiles. They would never let, they wouldn't cross the doorstep into a Gentile home and they wouldn't let Gentiles come in to their home. What an amazing step this is for Jewish believers. So there's progress for these Jewish Christians. Here's a question for for us. Do you accept others because of uh, our common union with the Saviour? Is your fellowship with others based on feelings? Who do I like the look of? Who looks most like me? Who am I most going to be comfortable with? Is it based upon feelings or an outward similarity? Or is it based upon a common profession of faith in the only saviour of men and women? So we see progress for Jewish Christians. And we see progress for Paul. You know, Paul's gone through some very difficult times and some very difficult issues. Almost at every turn, there's a new difficulty, a new burden upon him. But Paul is making progress in his own understanding of the gospel and in the clarity of his teaching to the church. Each issue, each difficulty, becomes a source of blessing as Paul taught clear Christian fundamental principles that addressed the problems and moved the people forward. Paul tackled the church problems by expounding the true meaning of scripture and applying it to the situation. And by writing it down in letters, we today have this great treasure that has blessed the Christian church throughout the past, today, and shall do so into the future. So why is Paul there in Jerusalem? He says in Acts 24, 17, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. Paul has been hounded throughout his three missionary journeys by unbelieving Jews. But now in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, which Ian looked at recently, and especially as it's noted in chapter 11 verse 22 we see that Paul also has another group of strict Jews after him these are converted Jews but one who dismissed Paul's ministry and apostleship and this has caused Paul and the Gentile Christians big problems Paul's dealt with those problems but Paul wants his apostleship to the Gentiles to be reaffirmed Uh, by the Jerusalem Christians church and by extension his written letters accepted and indeed all his teaching accepted he is the apostle apostle to the Gentiles after all and Paul wants the profession of Gentile believers recognized and accepted Paul wants the previously agreed principle 
that Gentile believers do not have to obey the law of Moses. He wants it publicly confirmed by the Jerusalem church to the Gentile church representatives he has with him. He wants the gift that is encouraged the Gentiles to collect and to bring with them to be graciously accepted. And he hopes it would break down the prejudice that Jewish Christians at Jerusalem have against the Gentiles and would show to them and prove to them the union that all believers have in the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem despite warnings in every city of the danger that he faces to himself. So Paul and his companions meet the Jerusalem church leaders. Perhaps there were as many as 70 elders in the Jerusalem church. In Acts 21, 19, we read, when he, that's Paul, had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they, that's the James and the Jerusalem church elders heard this, they praised God, it says, in Acts 21, the first half of verse 20. Their praise for, God, for Paul's report is them implicitly accepting and confirming Paul's apostolic ministry to the Gentiles. And it's what he has come for. He's achieved a lot of his goal. Paul is making progress. Paul's making progress through the teaching that he delivers on each of the issues that his Gentile churches experience and he experiences with them. And now he's beginning to make progress with the uh, Jerusalem church itself. So we've looked at progress and progress and progress. Now we begin to look at the Jerusalem Christians. Now the James that is talked about in this passage is not the Apostle James. That is the brother of the evangelist John who wrote John's Gospel. It's not that James because his death is recorded in Acts 2. This James is the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph and the son of Mary. Whereas Jesus, of course, was only the son of Mary and the Holy Spirit. This James is the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ and is mentioned by Paul in Galatians 1.19 and is mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He is already the leader of the Jerusalem church when Peter is released from prison in AD 44 as recorded in Acts 12.15. So James is the leader of the Jerusalem church and he's there with the Jerusalem church elders. And they hear Paul's report and they immediately, you know, it's an amazing report that's been given in detail. And they immediately start following their own agenda. Yes, they praise God for the salvation of more Jews. 
but there's no kind words of welcome recorded. There's no mention of their thanks for the enormous gift of money brought from the Gentile churches for the Jewish church poor. They completely overlook the immediate cause of the visit and they start plowing their own furrow. They only see their own problems and that's because they've already overlooked the solution to their own problems. James, the church elders, and as a result, the thousands in the Jerusalem church are being held back. They're being hindered by clinging to the past. And I would propose that there's three main areas where they've created hindrances for themselves. First of all, they'd failed to teach the church and it is the church leader and church elders' responsibility to teach the church. They had failed to teach the church in Jerusalem and then the nation, the Jewish nation, that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone and not by attempting to continually obey the law of Moses. True, they had accepted that the Gentiles believed and had received the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, just like the Jews themselves had at Pentecost. That's in Acts 11, when Peter uh, records what happened when he went to see Cornelius. They had heard Peter's other statements in Acts 11:9, that all food was declared clean by God. In a threefold vision, God had shown Peter that all food had been declared clean. Now, these Jews in Jerusalem, they knew from the Old Testament that dietary laws had been changed from time to time according to the decree of God. Happened at various times in the book of Genesis, for instance. They seen that God had already, from time to time, decreed changes in what was right for men and women to eat. And Paul had been their faithful witness, and Peter had been their faithful witness, that God had revealed to him that all food was now declared clean. And the Jews knew that revelation was progressive through Moses and the prophets over hundreds of years of time. And these Jewish Christians, they knew that Jesus was both the promised Messiah, who all the Jews had been looking forward to, but was also the Lord God Almighty himself of the Old Testament, as Peter declared in Acts, uh, on, on Pentecost, as recorded in Acts 2.36. They knew that Jesus himself had taught that it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but it's the sin that comes out of him that makes him unclean. And it was the responsibility of James and the other elders of the church in Jerusalem to make all this teaching plain first to the church and then to the city and nation. They had failed to do this 
and to work out the consequences for ongoing obedience to the laws of Moses when salvation was by faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ alone. Well, that's quite an accusation I've made there, isn't it? But they had all the scriptural evidence before them. So they had become a hindrance to their own Jewish church and general population by keeping them all looking to the ceremonial law and not rather looking for imputed righteousness from Christ alone. James, the Jerusalem church elders, and as a result, thousands in the Jerusalem church, were held back by clinging to hopes that they had in the past, before they knew Jesus as their Messiah, their Savior. Their focus on obedience to the law of Moses was becoming a hindrance to them growing as Christians. It's as if they'd allowed the gospel to change them so much, but no further. Are you like that? Have you permitted the gospel to change you so much, but then no further? Oh, no. I don't want to go beyond that point. I'm not, I'm not going to allow the, the gospel to so thoroughly reform me. It's going to change those areas of my life. Those are the ones I really want to cling on to. Yeah? Does their problem perhaps also describe you and me? Yeah? The gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe it. It saved me from the consequences of my sin. It saved me from an eternity of punishment by granting me forgiveness in the name of the Holy Lord Jesus Christ, who died on that cross, suffering in my place to satisfy the anger of a holy and righteous God. Yes, I believe. But I won't let it change me more than I want to be changed because I'm too comfortable in some of my old ways. And, I, and a bit of reform did me good, but I don't want a total transformation. I don't want to have a total upheaval in my life. I don't want a total rejection of some of the things in my past. And I don't want a total commitment to a future in Christ alone. That was their position. Is it yours? Is it mine? Eh? Is there something that you have relied on for so long that you just can't let go of it now? Is it your heritage? Yeah. But is your heritage also your ball and chain keeping you back? What won't you give up for Christ? That is the hindrance to your progress.
What is keeping you back from true Christian maturity? May God deal with you and I graciously by his Holy Spirit in this matter. For the Jews in Jerusalem, God brought a foreign army to besiege the city, to destroy the temple and the city and enslave and scatter the nation. That's a chilling prospect, isn't it? May God deal with us graciously over the things that we just don't want to give up for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or have you actually thrown yourself entirely upon the mercy of God, knowing the wrong you've woefully and continually done and you're now, praise God, relying on the atoning work of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and relying on absolutely nothing else. If you're not trusting him in him alone, you are eternally lost. Put your faith in God's only sacrifice for your sin right now. So that was the first issue that the elders and the leader of the Jewish Christian church were guilty of that became a hindrance to the thousands of believers. They failed to apply the revelation of God to their situation. And secondly, they made their failure Paul's problem. They made their failure Paul's problem. So uh, in, in Acts 21 verses 20 to 24, they tried to, first of all, they tried to trump Paul's report of a dozen or more Gentile churches being established with possibly hundreds of Gentile believers in each of them by their statement, see how many myriads, it says in the New King James, that's thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the Lord. Now, for the law, all of them are zealous for the law. They shouldn't have been zealous for the law, but they should have been zealous for Christ, shouldn't they? And zealous for the lost. But they seem content with numerical growth in their church rather than the growth in spiritual understanding of themselves and their church members. And then they go on to make what is an untrue statement in verse 21, that they've been informed that Paul teaches all Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses. We read um, earlier Romans 14, where Paul teaches no such thing. He tells that they should do uh, what they're convinced of, but he doesn't tell them to, um, if they're convinced of obeying the law of Moses, that they have to stop obeying it. So they make a statement that is untrue. 
we've been informed we've been informed that you teach all Jews who live amongst the Gentiles to turn away from Moses. Where they got their information from, who they're listening to, they don't say. But they're not taking Paul's word or the, the, the word of those who are with him, nor indeed of Paul's writings. So they say that these the, the Jews here will find out that you are here. So you've got to do what we tell you. Paul put on a show to placate them, to placate them. And so what was their failure in teaching the members of their own church? Though it's not by obeying the law of Moses that we're saved, but by faith alone in the, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their failure in teaching the members of their own church is now placed as a burden dropped upon Paul. Is that what you and I do? Is our failure to submit to the word of God and to change our life to be in agreement with it, is that now something we push over to become somebody else's problem? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be sanctified on that issue, so you're going to have to carry an extra burden as a result. So their failure in teaching their own members in their own church is now a burden dropped on Paul. But Paul, with his Holy Spirit insight, follows his own teaching on the weak and the strong, which is sent to the church at Rome from Corinth just five months before. Romans 14, 14, I am convinced, Paul says, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. That's a great principle. And then Romans 14, 19. Nevertheless, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. What another great principle written by Paul. Romans 15, verse 1. Paul acknowledges, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. Why? For even Christ did not please himself. So for the sake of those Jewish Christians who have scruples regarding law-keeping, Paul complies to their demands, treating them as the weaker party, pleasing them to build them up. I wonder whether Paul recalls in the back of his mind our Lord's prophecy, Luke 21, verses 5 to 38, about the temple's forthcoming destruction. However, they made their failures Paul's problem. It's as if they said, we won't budge, so you must. That's not a Christ-like attitude, is it? No. And it's not a way to make progress in your Christian life. But it's a good way to hinder it. So they made their failures Paul's problem. 
another hindrance to their own Christian life. And third, they allowed stereotypes about non-Jews to totally dictate how they viewed and dealt with all non-Jewish people. And they did this rather than taking what they knew about the transforming power and grace, the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ, and apply it to the gentle, the Christian Gentiles. So what they do in Acts 21 is they just reiterate easy stereotype instructions to the Gentiles. Yes, they praise, they offer praise to God after Paul's report, and so implicitly accept and confirm Paul's apostolic ministry to the Gentiles. And yes, they accept that the Gentiles are saved. Acts 21.20. But in verse 25, they dismiss the Gentiles as a genuinely sexually immoral group that eats disgusting food used in disgusting ways. They just lump all Gentiles together. This is our view of the Gentiles. You know, you've got to abstain from strangled food, from blood and from sexual immorality. They're not considering. They're speaking to Christian brethren indwelt by the Holy Spirit just as they themselves are. How disheartening it was for Paul and his companions. Interestingly, Luke never mentions James, the Jerusalem elders, or even the thousands in the Jerusalem church again. He doesn't say anything bad about them. He doesn't say anything good about them. But he never mentions them again. So why did the Jewish Christians and the elders in the church, why did they treat all Gentiles according to this sort of racial stereotype, this prejudice? Was it because the Jewish Christians themselves couldn't move forward from the laws of Moses that they didn't think the Gentiles could move forward from the idolatry and sexual immorality rife in the world then as now it does not seem to cross their minds that to judge this group of individuals as a group according to prejudices is in fact racist isn't it they're taking all the worst things said about Gentiles and applying it to Christian brethren that's not a way to deal with them they looked at the Gentile world and they recognised its idolatry and its immorality. And therefore they believed that Gentile Christians would also continue to be dominated by these sins. So, are you and I like the Jewish Christians? Is it because we ourselves haven't given up on our pre-conversion sins that we don't believe others can truly give up on theirs 
despite the sovereignty and God of God and the reality of a totally changed life that characterizes true repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? Do our prejudices show themselves as we deal with Christian brothers from different backgrounds? Yeah? Perhaps you've heard something about one ethnic group or another and therefore you assume it's true for all that group whether transformed by Christ's grace or not. Do you deny in practice the radical work of the Holy Spirit in other believers? This was a real hindrance to the Jerusalem church. They could not enjoy the benefits of fellowship <coughs> and companionship and hospitality that these other Jews had shared with the Gentiles that we've read about in the beginning of this chapter. Remember, God judges the heart. Man looks at the outside. Which viewpoint do you have of others? Do we hold prejudicial stereotype views of people that will hold us back as Christians? God changed you. God changed me, didn't he? Can't he have changed them too? So what's holding you back? What's the hindrance that's holding you back from progressing in knowledge, in Christian maturity in your faith? Have you got hold of something that distracts you from that vital relationship with Christ? These saved Jews, including James the Lord's brother, who had the privilege of a personal appearance of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, could not bring themselves to move on from Moses. Now there's a couple of interesting facts, isn't there? In the epistle of James, there's actually very little about Jesus Christ and about a personal living relationship with him. And secondly, the temple, which was the focus of the sacrificial system in Jerusalem, said it would be taken away from the Jerusalem church in just 12 short years after Paul's meeting with James and the church. And it would forever remove from the world the Jewish Old Testament practice and sacrificial system never to be reinstated. So what's holding you back? Are you prepared to go out of your comfort zone for Christ? Do you have at base that real, vital, ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ? that relationship that convinces you of the value of him and the comparative worthlessness of all else. Paul had that relationship. Do you? Is your heritage, your family background, 
Is it the ball and chain keeping you back like it was for those Jerusalem church elders? Or is there something that you've relied on for comfort for so long that you just can't let go of it now? Is it a psychological addiction built up by long association and use? So, will your Christian life be characterized by progress or hindrances? Do you see what unites Christians, the redeeming love of the Lord Jesus, that it's greater than any differences that might attempt to separate us? Do you treat all Christians accordingly? What welcome do you give to visitors in the church? Are you obedient to God's word? And is the tangible proof of your salvation and your obedience to the word of God? The Gentiles accompanying Paul displayed such tangible proof. What is holding you back? What's hindering your Christian growth? Even a faulty understanding of the Bible as these Jewish Christian, Jerusalem Jews had, can be sorted. And once again, you can progress spiritually. Will your Christian life be characterized by progress or by hindrances? Amen.